I am thankful that song didn't say just over yonder. Because then it'd be kind of far away. <laughs> but uh, just over the glory land is just a, a, a twinkling of the eye. Right? Just a twinkle of the eye and there we will stand. God is good. It is great to see you here this evening, both members and visitors alike. Those of you who are online, we praise God for all of you for your attendance. Let's please go together to God in prayer. A great Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for for blessing us, for tending to us, for caring for us. We've heard, Lord God, people say that you wound the world up and let it go. But that's not what happened. Lord God, as you have created us, you are intimately acquainted with each and every one of us. You know our needs. You know, uh, Lord God, our wants. You know our desires. You know everything about us, and we thank you for that. And for that reason... You being our creator and the creator of the universe. We surrender our lives to you. Tonight our worship uh, to you, we pray, has been pleasing and acceptable in your sight. And Lord God, as we together worship you, we pray, pray that our worship is pleasing to you. That you will help our minds to be rid of worldly thought. That we might focus only on you, your word, your will, and your way. Thank you for Jesus, your great son, who died that we might live. It's in his name we do pray and thank thee to be thy will. Amen. We've been talking about the canon of the Bible and we took some time to uh, validate Moses and Jesus because uh, it's very important to, to gain that foundation when you're talking to the world, not necessarily uh, speaking to, uh, when you think of theologians or, or thinking of uh, um, you know, great apologetics, but rather when you're just out there every day speaking to people, common people, uh, you you validate Moses and Jesus, and you got the whole Bible validated. It's amazing that we carry with us in the Word of God the the power-packed solution that God has given to us to answer the question, how did we get the Bible? There are many great books written about how we got the Bible. But I just want you to go to the great book to learn how we got the Bible because it answers the question in itself. Matthew 17 is where I want to begin tonight. Just by way of reminder, and then we'll start putting the pieces of the puzzle together. Beginning at verse 1. And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. You know, I kind of pause. I always uh, ask the question, how did they know that was Moses and Elijah? And the theological answer is, they had name tags on. (laughs) The reality is, God made it known, right? So here's Moses, the great Moses, alive and well, and he appears with Jesus by the authority of the Father, And so we have this amazing connection between the Father, the Son, Moses, and Elijah that makes it undeniable in the power of Moses. Chapter 19, please. And Jesus validates the writings of Moses in Matthew 19. The whole Pentateuch, Matthew, I mean, excuse me, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, just simply right here. Matthew 19, beginning at verse 4. And he answered and said, Have you not read 
that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. They're Genesis. There was a beginning. Kills the whole evolutionary idea. There was a beginning. And God made the beginning. God made in the beginning male and female and said, verse 5, For this cause man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and there the two shall become one flesh. There's family. God gave us family right in the very beginning. Verse 6, consequently, they are no longer one, but two. But, excuse me. Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Well, therefore, God has joined together. Let no man separate. And they said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said, because of the hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. So all the way back to the beginning, and Jesus validates those first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. Now, Moses, we studied last, when we studied this last, was authenticated, not only through the words that he spoke, but he was authenticated through miracles, right? We read that. We talked about that in the book of Exodus. Well, the apostles also were authenticated in the exact same way. Turn with, if you will, to Luke uh, chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. Not only did Jesus, who appeared with the Father and Moses and Elijah on the mountain before James and John and Peter, not only did Jesus choose these men, he gave them by the power of the Holy Spirit, the power to perform miracles, undeniable, noteworthy miracles. Luke, I think I said go to John. I, I'm getting ahead of myself. Luke chapter 6 is where I want us to go. And verse 12. The Bible says, And it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them, whom he also named his apostles, Simon, who was also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became the traitor. Mark chapter 16. And these men, these men were given power by the Holy Spirit to perform miraculous actions and acts that were undeniable. Mark 16, verse 15. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who have believed in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink any diddy poison, it will not harm them. And they will lay hands on the sick. And they will recover. So then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. So the word of God had not yet been confirmed. This New Testament, the writings, if you will, the writings of the apostles that would come. But through the miracles, the word was confirmed 
over a process of time. So turn now to Hebrews chapter 2. And I'm going to show you what happened over the process of time. So as the apostles went about preaching and teaching and writing and declaring the words of God, they were, everything they wrote was being confirmed by the miracles that they performed. Undeniable, noteworthy miracles. Hebrews 2, beginning at verse 1. For this reason, we must pay a much closer attention to what we have heard, unless we drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was first spoken through the Lord? It was, listen to the tense, it was, past tense, confirmed to us by those who heard God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So, in Mark it says, the word was being confirmed. And in Hebrews, later in history, we find the word was confirmed. So we have this great confirmation of the whole New Testament, as well as, if you will now, we'll put all the pieces of the puzzle together in the Old Testament as well. Deuteronomy chapter 31. So what about what about Joshua? Joshua comes along on the scene. Was was Joshua just a made up name? And by the way, this is really important that these people, right? They're checkable. You can check history and you will know through a historical account that there was a man named Moses, there was a man named Joshua, there was a man named Jesus. Now, a good man, a God-fearing man, who is declared good and God-fearing by God, maybe I'll use the word God-fearing rather than good, who is declared God-fearing by God and chosen by God, that man would not authenticate someone that is not from God. So Moses and God authenticate Joshua, which authenticates the whole book, the whole promised land, going into Canaan, the whole account, everything that we read, Deuteronomy 31 and verse 14. The Bible says there, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the time for you to die is near. Call Joshua and present yourselves at the tent of meeting that I may commission him. So Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves at the tent of meeting. Now, you can continue to read about Moses authenticating Joshua. So now, we have Moses, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We have Joshua now, confirmed and authenticated by God and by Moses. Now, Joshua, um, we're going to skip Samuel because he's the last judge. We'll come back to him in just a moment. I want to go to Matthew chapter 1. Because now we have to ask ourselves, in the days of the conquest of Joshua and after those days, was there a a leader or a, a sect of leaders or people like Ruth and David and Solomon, did they exist on the earth? Well, they're in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 1, we follow the genealogical trail of Jesus Christ, and we find beginning at verse 5, And to Samuel was born Boaz by Rahab, and to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth, and to Obed, Jesse, and to Jesse was born David and the king, and to David was born Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. So we have these great men 
who are mentioned by God. And Solomon, verse 7, to Solomon was born Rehoboam and Rehoboam, Abijah and Abijah, Asa. We have this amazing historical account of the uniting of the kingdom and the dividing of the kingdom of Israel, which is all found in the book of Chronicles and also the books of Kings, beginning in the book of Samuel. Right? So it's powerful how God puts it all together for us. So now, Ruth, she is validated through her husband Boaz, taking it yet another step, who is the great grandfather of David. You just can't, you can't make this stuff up. It only, it can only come from God. The amazing connection over the years of historical accounts from the Word of God. Go to 1 Samuel, please, chapter 3. Samuel, Samuel serves as a judge, he's the last judge. He serves as the judge, priest, and prophet, who is also the writer of First and Second Samuel, most likely the author also of the books of Ruth and the book of Judges. So he tells the story of Ruth through the book of Ruth. Samuel anoints Saul as the king of Israel, which begins the books of both Kings and Chronicles. Now, Technically speaking, if you go through a chronological study of the Bible, Second Chronicles is the end of the whole entire Old Testament. Okay, it's the historical account of the Old Testament days of Israel. First Samuel chapter three, beginning at verse ten. There, the Bible God validates Samuel by saying this: Then the Lord came and stood and called at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for thy servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel, at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day I will carry out against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house, beginning from the beginning to the end. Excuse me. For I have told him that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew, because his sons brought a curse on themselves, and he did not rebuke them and therefore i have sworn to the house of eli that the iniquity of eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever and you go back and you study eli's dynasty and you realize wow that's exactly what happened samuel you realize that it's undeniable that he is chosen by god as a judge and a priest as well as a prophet We have the New Testament writings, the Acts of the Apostles. Part of their sermon to the Jews involved messages about Samuel, the undeniable prophet, priest, and judge. So let's go to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. I'm just trying to show you in a very um, concise way, there's so many other scriptures we could use, how the Bible canonizes itself. So that we don't have to trust in a council of men coming together and say, well, this is the reason that we have the Bible. Or this is historically how we got the Bible. God gave us the inspired word and protected it by himself. And by the way, if you go back and study about 323 or so A.D., you'll find that the reality is they took books that were already in circulation, considered the Bible, and then they put their stamp of approval on it. Well, God already took care of that. Acts chapter 3 and verse 18. The Bible says, But the things which God announced beforehand 
by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ should suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Verse 24. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. So part of the sermon to convince the Jews to follow Jesus goes back to Samuel. And he says, Samuel spoke this. And they don't deny it. They don't say, well, wait a minute. Was there such thing as a man named Samuel? Is this true? No, they knew who Samuel was. From the teachings and the followings of the Jews in Judaism. Turn to Acts chapter 13. Acts 13 and verse 16. So that was Peter and Luke validating Samuel the prophet. Now, the apostle Paul and Luke. Join validating the prophet Samuel. Verse 16. And Paul stood up and motioning with his hands, he said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Verse 20. And after these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. You go back and read the whole sermon. But the point is, here's the validation of Samuel. So you have the whole book. First Samuel, Second Samuel, Judges and Ruth. We have them all connected and all joined together. Hebrews chapter 11, please. Hebrews chapter 11. Though we, we, we don't know the actual author because it's not stated, uh, but the book of Hebrews mentions people and places and times. The book of faith. And it says to us in verse 32, it says, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets. So what one would have to do is to try to prove to us that the word of God is not from God. You've got to disprove all these people. How are you going to do that? You have to, you have to go back into, into some of the oracles of the, the Jews, the writings of the Jews, and find that these men, the Jews, rebuked the, rebuked, excuse me, the fact that this man or these people ever existed in the positions that they existed in. And that's an absolute impossibility. Sometimes when we try to prove, we go into apologetics, we try to prove that God exists, or we try to prove to people that the Bible's real and it's from God. I think we go at it from a too much of a philosophical idea, a theological idea. Just go to the book, right? You could not deny that I exist. You can try, but you can't deny it. And years down the line, you can't deny it. And you, you could have a group of people who denied that I was ever the minister or the minister here. You could deny it all you want to, but the evidence will prove you wrong all day long, right? And so you go through history and you combine all these historical facts together and you recognize that these are undeniable proofs and evidence. Instead of trying to prove to people uh, God whom, and, and we have to do that. I'm not saying that we, we don't do that. But instead of wrestling with whether God exists, say, well, let's go back and see if these people existed. Let's go back and, and check. Now, once we start validating all these people, you can't help them believe in God. There's no way you can have such a consistent document that we have. The Bible, the collection of books, all of these books over all of this time with all of these authors and it not contradict unless it came from God. Well, go to Nehemiah. Nehemiah and Ezra. Nehemiah, and maybe one day we'll, we'll look at um, what the only book, they say, that never mentions the name of God. 
And I'm going to show you God. I'll show you God all over that book. Undeniably, you look at it and go, wow, I don't know who came up with that idea. <laughs> Whoever came up with the idea that that book doesn't contain the name God. It does over and over and over again. We'll look at that. Nehemiah and Ezra, they validate uh, each other. Nehemiah tells of, of God's working. God's working in the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem and Jerusalem and the temple in itself. And that when you go through and you look at Cyrus and all the things that had happened and what Nebuchadnezzar and his dynasty and the, the Babylonians, what they did and how Cyrus released the Jews and how 50,000 Jews left from Babylon and went south down to, uh, to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. You've got to deny all that history. But you can't. There's no way possible unless you just close your eyes and refuse to believe the truth. Well, there's a bigger, there's a bigger story to Ezra and Nehemiah. And by the way, when you think of Ezra and Nehemiah, you have to include the contemporaries, right? What we call the minor prophets. You got to put all five of those books together. Ezra, Nehemiah, Zechariah, Malachi, and Haggai. You got to put them all together because they're all writing and they're all working on the rebuilding of the walls and the temple. There's so much more to it than just Nehemiah and Ezra. In fact, it's so much bigger. The story is huge because it carries all the way into the New Testament when Jesus rebuilds Jerusalem, the walls, the house of God, the temple of God in us. Well, it's amazing. Nehemiah 8. Um, look at verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had given to Israel. So notice, Ezra is in the book of Nehemiah, right? Ezra was a scribe. Ezra reads to them the Bible, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. They read it and say, hey, what does thus saith the Lord? And Ezra, verse 2, Ezra, a priest, brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Now someone said, well, you know, there are other books out there. Well, Bring those books. Let's check the historical accuracy of those books. Compare them to the Word of God. And you'll find that there is no comparison. There, there are amazing religious books out there that people follow. There, there are times and places that don't even exist. People that have never existed. Lands that don't even, lands that aren't even on the earth <laughs> that are mentioned. Made up fairy tales stories. But thank God, turn to Ezra please, chapter 5, that we have a book that we can trust in that comes from God and does not have error within it. Ezra 5 in verse 1, when the prophets Haggai and the prophet and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. And you can continue reading. So here you have Haggai and Zechariah. All of these books, these people, these prophets, they're all connected. They're all, there wasn't some mystery where some man shows up and says, hello, I'm Haggai. It was Haggai. Everybody knew who Haggai was. And Zechariah, these were known prophets of God. And they're all validating each other. They're all validating one another. And they're all working together. And God is giving them the message that comes from Him. Now, the, the temple, technically, 
is, 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 I guess if you want to call it credit, was given to Zerubbabel for building or rebuilding the temple. And you go back and study Nehemiah and other books, but you find that in these books it talks about these men. I want to go to Ezra chapter 6 and verse uh, 15 for just a moment. Look at the temple. And the, the, this temple was completed on the third day of the month Adar. It was the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Now, we know that happened historically. Darius to me, he wrote about it. Persons, everybody wrote about it. The Bible talks about it. But you see, the point of this and the greatness of this and the reason why this is so prolific and so world-renowned is not necessarily because that temple was rebuilt or the walls were rebuilt. We read the story, right? We read the story of what was going on when they were rebuilding the walls and how they were being uh, uh, persecuted by Sam Ballot and Tobiah. And we read about all those people and we know, okay, we get that. But there's something bigger to that story that points us to the New Testament church. Turn to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. Listen to what Jesus says regarding the true temple or tabernacle, if you will, in verse 19. There the Bible says, Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He's talking about Herod's temple, but it's the same temple being rebuilt and reconstructed. So here's this temple that has existed from the days of Solomon that has been rebuilt and reconstructed. But it's the same temple in the same place. And Jesus says, again, in this verse, in verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews therefore said it took 46 years to build this temple. And you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Isn't that amazing? Here God has a connection that he put together over history. Over history. Thousands of years ago, there's this connection that is, uh, if you will, excuse me, not thousands of years ago, but we're almost that. And there's this connection, this amazing connection that God speaks of with Herod's temple. And then going back over the course of time, it all came to this. What we're in right now, the temple of God, not the building, the church, the people. God had it all put together and connected accurately, precisely, and perfectly. Now, I know we skipped a lot of books. We'll get those next week. But what I want to do is I want to conclude in the book of Malachi. Well, we're going to Matthew is where we're going right now. But we're going to conclude with the book of Malachi, which, which you would say technically uh, is the last book of uh, the Bible, uh, the Old Testament, and, and that would be correct. Um, but Matthew chapter 11, I want you to see Jesus validating the book of Malachi. You can trust Malachi, the prophet of God. Verse 13, the Bible says, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. If you care to accept it, he himself is Elijah who was to come. Wait, the same Elijah who was transfigured at the Mount of Transfiguration. The same Elijah you read about in the books of Kings. The same Elijah, the great prophet of the Jews. That Elijah, Jesus said, that's John the Baptist. 
John the baptizer, John the immerser, was the one who prepared the way for Jesus. It's all connected. Malachi prophesied it. Malachi, please. Chapter 3. Malachi told us that not only would John come, so would Jesus. Malachi 3 and verse 1. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Chapter 4, please. Verse 4. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. And you know what? In John chapter 1, everybody kept asking, John, John the Immerser, are you, are you the Christ? Are you the expected one? See, this isn't, this has not been done in a, in a secret cave. This is open for the world to investigate. It's undeniable. I don't know if I believe in God any longer, but if you're going to tell me you don't believe in God, you have to go back and refute all of the known history of the Bible. And not only that, the history that's outside of the Bible that wasn't intended to speak in regards of the Bible or to support the Bible or even to make people believe in God. It's just history. And you can't do that. No one can. So sometimes in our effort to prove God to be true for those who do not believe in God, Sometimes in our effort to prove the Bible to be true, sometimes we step too far outside of the Bible. All the evidence is right here. We are carrying in our possession by the great gift and blessing of God, if you will, an inspired book that comes from God that will not only tell us how we got here, it's going to tell us where we're going to. The lesson is yours tonight. Thank you for your time. I appreciate uh it, I hope and pray something was said to encourage you. Uh, believe in the Bible. Trust it. And follow it all the days of your life. And Lord willing, next week we'll conclude this lesson and we'll wrap up the rest of the books that we did not cover in this lesson tonight. Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it.